0: Very good morning to you and greetings from uh, Vancouver, Canada. My name is Mark, and I have the privilege of bringing God's Word to you this morning. Uh, the text that we will be considering this morning together comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and I'm going to read from verse 39 to verse 43. Luke chapter 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, let us ask for God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Let us pray together. Our Father, as we hear these words, as we see them before our eyes, we ask that we would have not only eyes to see the words, but the eyes of faith to see the glory of Christ and to be transformed by that glory from one degree of glory to another, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so bless us to that end, we pray. Amen. Well, perhaps you have seen uh, pictures of uh, convicted criminals, perhaps killers, And so on and as their life story is brought home to you, you see pictures of them when they were little children, Uh, sometimes in that youthful innocence playing and skipping along and being merry and you think to yourself, where did it go so wrong? If you think about it, there were two young boys at some point, likely in Jerusalem They grew up, they played games, they came home to mom and dad, they ate, they smiled, they laughed, and because of certain actions or non-actions, they find themselves at a point in world history where between them is the eternal Son of God, is the Lord of glory, is the visible image of the invisible God, the one who is chief among 10,000. And those two and those two alone are crucified on either side of our Savior. We don't know where it went wrong. We do know why it went wrong in a certain manner of speaking because they are sinners, but what we find before us are the fulfillment then of certain words given to us in God's word. And context is everything in this section. Context is everything in life. A statement can be highly offensive or not offensive based upon context. Jesus has prayed already Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. And what Matthew's gospel tells us in chapter 27, verse 44, is that both of the criminals actually railed at him. That is, at some point, while the three of them were crucified at Golgotha, both of the criminals were joining the mockery and scorn and hatred and ridicule of the Messiah of Jesus of Nazareth, of the King of the Jews. And you see, the context is important because Jesus is upon a cross. Now that goes without saying, but you have to remember now that in context, he was not turning the water into wine and his disciples saw his glory and believed. He was not trampling upon the waves, walking upon the water. He was not feeding the 5,000 he was not healing an official's son. He was not going into villages and curing thousands of people of every known disease. He was not saying, Lazarus, come out. He was not walking by. And John the Baptist is declaring publicly and loudly, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No. He was on a cross. And that is the context for the words before us. He is on a cross. Now, you see, the first thief, let's call this thief the one who doesn't, as far as we know, end up believing. The first thief represents how many treat God. You see this in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him. And we get the word blaspheme from that word railed. It is he blasphemed him and he wasn't just mocking him but he was blaspheming him. And why was he blaspheming him? Well, notice what he says. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Here is the devil's theology. This is the devil's theology because we know that Essentially, when Jesus was in the wilderness, He was being tempted, Satan basically said to Him, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself from this madness. Save yourself from this hunger. Turn the stone into bread. Bow down to Me and all of the suffering will be gone. Save yourself. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And so years later, here is this sinner... Offering the same theology. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us, by the way. And you see, this is how perhaps even millions of people have treated God in times of predicament. They get a bad diagnosis. God, save me. They lose money. God, save me. Something goes wrong with their child. God, please, I will be a Christian. I will do what you want. I will change my life. Save me. Because I'm in a predicament. And sometimes, by the way, God is merciful and actually does answer those prayers. But very often, the heart of that theology is carnal and wicked. And you see he thought it would be better for Christ to perform a miracle for their escape. And that's most interesting to me because Christ could easily have responded, if I save myself, I cannot save you. And if I would save you, I cannot save myself. It also reveals at least to me something about The fact that we think we can have an airtight request to God. We can go to God and it can make complete sense to us. We can consider that God is powerful. God is good. And we can present a request before him. And we think that God really should answer this. And we'll even dress it up in the fact that God will get glory from this. But you see, what was the last request Christ was ever going to answer on the cross at that time, it was the request made by this criminal, save yourself. It was the last thing he would do because he came to save sinners. So his theology is a very natural theology, so to speak, a very fleshly theology. It is a theology where God is there to bail you out to look after your immediate interests without having any scope for the greater realities of why we're in this world and where we're going. Now, the other criminal, he's a very fine theologian indeed. In fact, if anyone has been most unfairly represented in their theology, I think this criminal would make a great case He's usually discussed in reference to silly theological debates. So, well, do you need to be baptized in order to be a Christian and go to heaven? And then they say, ah, yeah, what about the criminal? Or you say, well, you ordinarily should do good works on the way to heaven. They're not going to justify you, but you should do good works as the fruit of your living faith. Ah, yes, but what about the criminal? And when we do that, we miss the glory of the theology that is expressed by this dying man. Notice in verse 40, he says to the other thief, do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? The way you are speaking, the way you're blaspheming, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, He fears God. The fear of God, said John Murray, is the soul of godliness. Jerry Bridges talks about the fact that there was a time when committed Christians were known as God-fearing people. And this was actually a badge of honor. But somewhere along the way, we've lost that and it has become a relic of the past. It's not really that cool to be known as a God fearing person. Can you imagine uh, being a Christian on the campus down the road at the University of Pennsylvania and uh, you put an ad out in the local newspaper God fearing young man looking for God fearing young lady? I would actually be rather afraid of what might show up. (laughs) We don't refer to Christians as God-fearing people anymore. Yeah, that is precisely what Christ himself was. In the days of his flesh, he offered up supplications with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because of his Reverence, And that word reverence is the type of fear that we're talking about. Not the fear of dread and terror of running away from God, but being in awe of His majesty, that He is God, that He is eternally God and unchangeably God and powerfully God. Do you not fear this God, this just and holy God? Do you not fear Him, since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? But His theology actually gets better because notice in verse 41, he admits that he's in the wrong. And we indeed justly, you and I, we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Andy in Shawshank Redemption, I'm only actually standing by the words I'm going to quote to you and nothing else in the movie. I do not need any emails when I uh, make my way back to the land of the free in Canada and (laughs) enjoy my family. And all of a sudden, uh, a mother watched Shawshank Redemption with her young child, and several paragraphs later... uh, ask, how can you in good conscience quote from that movie? So I'm standing by these words and these words alone. Andy says, everyone in here that is in jail is innocent. Don't you know that? Everyone in here is innocent. Don't you know that? Because the greatest temptation in the world, apparently, even for those who are in jail, appears to be self-justification. That I'm not as bad as what others perceive me to be. That these factors are the reason why I did this and that and the other. It's not really my fault. And yet, the soul and substance of true religion is not just the fear of God, but it's the fear of God in the context of giving up any form of self-justification. It is to say, like David... In Psalm 51, that I was shaped, I was formed in iniquity and in sin did my mother, conceived me, wash me and I'll be whiter than so. No self-justification. It's like the publican who beats his chest and does not even look up to heaven and says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. No self-justification. And here this criminal and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds and I just want you to notice those words for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds may well indeed be the words that spring from the lips of every unbeliever when Christ comes in judgment we are receiving the due reward of our deeds but What a horrible, horrible situation this would be if the next words out of this criminal's mouth had never been uttered. What a hopeless situation it would be if he did not say these next words. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now how much he understood precisely of what those words would mean, I don't know myself, but... He knew that Jesus was innocent and maybe he knew a great deal more than that because we can say as Christians that in all of world history of every created person who's ever been made and come into this world and left the world and those maybe billions who are yet to come into this world, there will only be one person of whom we can say, this man has done nothing wrong. This man beside us, and this man alone has done nothing wrong. In fact, to put it positively, this man has done everything right, for he always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. This man has done nothing wrong. We are guilty, we deserve to be here. There is no self-justification. He fears God, but then he has boldness in verse 42. And he said, and again, it's as though if you were to cut off verse or words in this dialogue, it would really be depressing because he gets so close here. He sees he's a sinner. He sees that the person beside him is not, but that doesn't actually matter in a certain sense unless verse 42 is here. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think about how extraordinary these words are. He's just admitted that he is a condemned criminal and rightfully so. And he's also acknowledged that God is to be feared because God is holy and God is just. So if I'm a sinner and I'm a convicted criminal and I deserve to be upon a cross and God is just and God is to be feared, what business do I have saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? It's one of the greatest acts of faith anywhere in God's word. It rivals Abraham's as he takes his son to Moriah to sacrifice him there. And where were the disciples? Where was Peter? Though all men forsake you, I will never forsake you, even if I have to die with you. Where was Peter? Where was James and John who had seen the glory of the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration? Where were the disciples? This crucified criminal in the most hopeless situation you can conceive of thinks that the person beside him, a crucified Messiah who's under God's curse has a kingdom. Again, he is not at the resurrection of Lazarus saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was not putting his faith In Jesus, when Jesus was at his alleged best. There were many who saw Jesus raise the dead and did not believe, but this man sees Jesus on a cross, about to die, and believes that he has a kingdom. And for the unrepentant criminal, Jesus must come down from the cross in order to save him. But for the penitent, repentant criminal, Jesus must stay on that cross in order to save him. This is no ordinary faith. This is someone who wakes up that morning only to find themselves crucified. And the only person in the world who can actually help him is right beside him now what does Christ do in response to such faith in verse 43 he said to him truly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise do you know Christ's only conversation partners on the cross were this criminal and his father there's something beautiful about that a criminal And his father. And he says, truly I say to you. Think about how many times Jesus said, truly I say to you throughout the course of his ministry. Truly, truly, amen, amen, verily, verily, I say to you. And this would be the last time he ever utters those words. And they are believed. The most hopeless situation in the world And Christ is actually able to turn it into the most hopeful situation in the world because he is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. He is the one in whom if there is to be any hope in this world, it must be through him. And this is precisely what he does. And nobody received a greater assurance of salvation in the gospels than this convicted criminal Today, you will be with me. You will be with me. Not the modern conception of the natural man who says, well, I want to go to heaven when I die. I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven. And the funerals where, well, they're smiling down upon us now. No, the Christian understanding of glory is that we are with him Not merely in heaven, but we are with him. Jesus doesn't say, today you will be in glory. He says, you will be with me in glory. Because Christ had prayed in John chapter 17, verse 24, the following words. Father, I desire that those whom you have given me, yes, even this criminal, be with me where I am. Be with me where I am. To see my glory. The glory. That you gave me before the foundation of the world. Jesus tells him. You will be with me. In paradise. This Persian word for garden. but you will be in a better garden. Than Adam could ever have conceived. Because you will be in the presence of Christ. And what can we say just by way. Of conclusion. I want you to not forget the thief who apparently does not believe and the seriousness of unbelief. Not just the glory of faith, but the seriousness of unbelief. In the New Testament, we read of Christ marveling at two things in particular. Two times I count where he marvels. The first is the faith of the Roman centurion. Jesus marveled at such faith, but the other time he marvels is at the unbelief of, of his own people in Nazareth. Imagine causing the Son of God to marvel, to be stunned, and it's unbelief that stuns him. It's unbelief that causes him to marvel. And that is why the most important thing for anyone is that they believe. And that is why The real sin that will condemn every single person who does not believe is unbelief. It is fundamentally unbelief. Martin Luther said, there is no greater sin in the world than that of unbelief. Every other sin, he says, is a mere flea bite in comparison. He says, like when my youngsters, Hans and Lena, they go poop in the corner and we laugh and think that it's something cute and okay. Okay. But faith, faith, it does the same thing. It neutralizes the stink of our own off-scouring before God. That's what faith does. To sum it all up, the sin for which the world will be judged is a failure to believe in the only begotten Son. But what is the faith that comes from above? What is the faith that startles even Christ, that causes him to marvel? It's the faith that you and I can possess. The faith by which we can say, I am in the wrong, and you alone, O Lord, are in the right where we give up any form of self-justification and because we've come to know God, we fear such a God and yet the God we fear is actually the God we love, the God that is merciful, the God that welcomes in sinners so that this criminal on the cross could sing that lovely hymn and imagine him singing this hymn, a bit of my sanctified imagination, I hope you will understand, Nothing in my hands I bring Imagine this criminal singing, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I, yes, I'm guilty. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And Christ says in return, you will be with me in paradise. And if you believe in the only begotten Son, those words are no less true from the lips of Christ himself to you this day. You will be with me in paradise. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you that we do not need to bring anything in our hands, but rather relinquish our self-righteousness and through the gift of faith simply receive the words of Christ himself that we will be with him in paradise. May it be that everyone here can receive those words afresh in their soul today or perhaps even for the first time so that we may see his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Amen.